If you have a Bible, open up your Bible up to the book of Ephesians. We're going to continue in that series uh, this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I believe we'll have the text up on the screen for you uh, there this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. I, I want to pray before we get into it. And um, uh, there's a bit of a, just kind of a caution that I have for us. And it's, a, it's really a caution to myself because I ran into this uh, getting ready for this. Uh, uh, we can become very familiar for those of us, especially those of us who we've been in church or where we've been around these texts for a while. Or we've heard these kind of messages before. And we've heard these truths and these concepts before. It can become really familiar to us and we can in many ways get inoculated um, with the gospel. And, and uh, I myself kind of ran into this a little bit because the text this morning, they're really just two verses that I'm going to be preaching from. And I just thought, man, okay, it's only two verses. I mean, and I was talking to somebody and they, and they said, well, what are the verses? And I said, well, we're talking about redemption and forgiveness. And they're like, oh yeah, those aren't big things at all. So, um, so it was a very good, uh, very good poke in the eye there. Um, but I really do want us to just stop and pray and ask God that we, that we just wouldn't assume that we already know this and that it's um, already something that we're just already kind of aware of, but that God might really reveal something fresh and new to us this morning. And that doesn't happen um, by anything that I do. It only happens by God and his spirit. And so we're asking for something crazy in the next 40 minutes here that God by his spirit um, would, would talk to us, that he would show us something new about himself. And so uh, let's just go to him with that and ask him to do just that. Father God, thank you for, uh, thank you for this time this morning. God, where we can freely come and gather and God, lift our voices to you and God, now open your word and see what it is that you have to say to us. And um, God, I do. I pray that you would protect us from our own just assumptions about what we're gonna hear. And God, some of us in this room, we have been really saturated in this truth um, to the point that where it no longer rings fresh. And God, I just pray that you'd shake us from that. Um, God, there are people in the room who they will hear these things for the very first time. And I just thank you for that, God. And I pray, God, that this truth would be real. Um, God, that you would just illuminate it. Um, God, that you would um, just absolutely, um, God, let it sink deep into our hearts and our minds. And God, let it show up in our lives. Um, God, I am just painfully aware of my need for your help. And so, God, I ask for your mercy now. God, I ask that by your spirit, um, you would just guide me. And, God, that you um, would talk to us. Jesus, I love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1 the primary verses, we're going to be in seven or eight, but we're going to take kind of a running start at that. In verses three through 14 in the Greek, it's really this kind of long run-on sentence. And the idea that Paul's trying to convey to the church is, is that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That before the foundations of the world, the church of God was being blessed uh, by being chosen to be his. We, we've been blessed by being made blameless and holy in his sight. In Christ, God blesses us by bringing us into his family when he adopts us as sons and daughters. And now the king of the universe is our father. And in verse 7 and 8, we're going to learn two more additional blessings um, to the ones above. We'll start in verse 3, actually. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved." Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So here's the, there's just kind of one key thought that we're going to break down this morning, and it's this, that in Christ, we, meaning the church, we have been blessed with redemption and forgiveness. In Christ, we have been blessed with redemption and forgiveness. Paul's whole point of this long kind of sentence is that he wants us to realize how blessed we are. Because when you see these blessings and when you really kind of let them sink in, they will stir in you um, this heart of praise, a praise for his glorious grace. What Paul's trying to drive us towards is saying, look, and, and look in light of all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus, we should be the church, we should be the followers of Jesus, we should be a people who are really awestruck and astonished at who God is and what he has done. But, but if we're honest, we don't always feel like that. We, we don't always feel like we're blessed by God. We don't always feel the desire to worship him with everything. We really don't feel um, th that amazement or astonishment. We're, we're thankful for God's grace. We're glad that it's there. But amazement or astonishment, that's not how we often feel. In fact, I think there's a lot of Christians who will be way more enthusiastic about a game tonight than they will be about their God this morning. And so what Paul is trying to do is stir up in us the proper response to who he is and what he has done. So we're going to take that phrase, in Christ we've been blessed with redemption and forgiveness, and kind of pick it apart and look at those, look at three things in particular. So in him, what does that mean? What does that mean to be in? You ever use that phrase? You ever talk about that, hey man, can you get me in? Can, I, I want to get in there. I wish that I was in. You know, if you're trying to get into a place, you call a guy who calls a guy who calls another guy, and then they call you back say, hey man, you're in, right? So if you're in, if you're in business, right, you're trying to get to the right location, you're trying to get the right team around you, you want the right marketing, you want the right advertising, you want the right deal, you want the right thing so that you can be in. I just spent all kinds of time with junior high and high school youth, and that's their whole world. They're just trying to be in. I want to be, get on the right team or in the right club or with the right people because I know what it's like to be out, and I don't want to be out. I want to, I want to be in. If you've had a life like mine, you've had a lot of people said, how did you get in here, right? <clears throat> so what Paul is trying to say is that you have these things in Christ, what's it mean to be in? It means that I've been joined into the environment, the circumstances, the people, the relationship. I have access to an opportunity that I've been hoping for. But for the Christian, it means that when we put our faith in Jesus, we didn't just join an organization or we didn't just join a club. We joined up with Jesus. The goal isn't just to get in the building. The goal is to get into the person of Christ. And when we put our faith in Christ, our life and our story and our past and our history and our present and our future are inseparably joined together with Jesus and with his past and his story and his present and his future. 
And when we come to brand new life, that life is joined to Christ, not just mentally believing in Christ, not just making a one-time pledge to Christ, but literally joining our life to his life because then we receive life and the life that we receive is his life. So what Paul's telling us is he's not just saying, look, you get something. What he's saying is you, when you come to, to faith in Christ, we get someone, namely Jesus. Faith in Jesus means that I am supernaturally joined to Jesus, where I'm commingled and intertwined into one new identity that I, by faith through grace and God's favor, I am joined into Jesus. I, I, I'm still me, but I'm me and Jesus, and we are interwoven together. That has massive implications for us because it means if he rose and I rose, if it means that he died, then I died. If he lives, I live. If he has won, I have won. If he would, I will. If he won't, I won't. If he doesn't think it's funny, I don't think it's funny. If he weeps over it, I weep over it. Because I, by faith and through grace, am linked with Jesus. So that means if he wouldn't watch it, I won't watch it. If he doesn't want any part of it, I don't want any part of it. If he doesn't think it's a path that leads to life, then I don't think it's a path that leads to life. If he says, this is the way to walk in, then I say, that's the way that I'm going to walk in. If he says, these are the people that I will love and serve, then I say, those are the people that I will love and serve. Because it's not just me. It's me in Christ and Christ in me. I'm joined to Christ forever. My identity is no longer my own. And that really is the big question. Are you in Christ? Does your identity, the very nature of who you are, does it come from being in him or are you still in you? Because we live in a world that's highly addicted to self. In 2017, the number one hashtag on Instagram I just lost a bunch of you with that sentence. <clears throat> Instagram is this social media app where we share pictures of where we are and what we're eating with each other, right? The number one hashtag on Instagram in 2007, or excuse me, the number three uh, hashtag on Instagram in 2017 was hashtag me. Hashtag me. Now, you would use hashtag me when you take a picture of yourself called a selfie. selfie. <laughs> My young folks, there we go. So. <clears throat> When you take a selfie, and the selfie is when you're tired of taking pictures of where you're at or what you're eating, you now have to give an update on who you are, so you take a picture of yourself. Hashtag me. We live in a culture that is highly addicted to self. But being in Christ means that we are no longer all about ourselves. Our lives are now woven together and linked up to Christ. In Ephesians, God talks to us about who we are in him before God talks about what we do, which is the opposite of religion. Religion starts with what you do, and it works its way towards what you might become. But God starts with what we become in him, and he works his way to show how we then should live because of that new creation and the outcome of your new identity. In other words, God always starts with who you are in him first, and out of that should come what you do. Your identity precedes your activity. And so the question from Ephesians is not what are you doing, but who do you think you are? Because who you think you are will determine what you do. 
Let me illustrate this. Have you ever watched any of these like um, singing show contest things like Voice, American Idol, these kind of things, right? So when, when somebody gets on there and they sing and there's a panel of professionals, either professional singers, musicians, or producers, people who make singers and musicians, and they stand up there and they sing in front of this panel and the panel says, ah, I really don't think... I don't think you got it. Sorry, sorry. And then they always interview the person when they're walking off from the stage and they said, yeah, I mean, I know they said I don't, but I know who I am. I'm an artist. I'm a star. And you're like, no, man. P. Diddy just said, you are not. You're not that. Like 30 seconds ago, he just said, you're not. But when you believe that's who you are, well, that's just what I'm going to do. I am an artist. I'm a singer. I'm going to sing. And what Paul's saying, if you believe who you are in Christ, then all of these things will flow out of your life that you should be doing. The outcome of this letter is more holy living. And if God wants holy living out of us, he has to remind us first that we are holy people. We're set apart people. That's why in verse 1, he says, this is to the saints because of Jesus. God changed who I am so I can change what I do. I don't change what I do to change who I am. And grace first means that God changed my identity, and because of that, that informs how I now live. It's less me trying to do better, to be better, and more trusting in what God can do in and through me. Being in Christ answers, how does all this stuff happen? How do all these blessings come about? Because we are in Christ, we're joined together with Christ. It's so interesting to see how all these blessings are connected with the hinge of our position in Christ. In the, in the NIV, 10 times in the first 14 verses, the phrase in Christ or in him is used. If you're a person who makes marks in your, in your, in your Bible, I got a ton of marks all in, in, my, in my little Bible here, um, you should go through and every time you see that phrase in him or in Christ, make a little mark um, and see how often that is used in this, in this letter. But, but Paul tells us you are, you're blessed in him, you're redeemed in him, you're chosen in him, you've been made aware of the plans of God in him, in Christ you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, in Christ you've been loved, in Christ is where the hope comes, in Christ. It's not just a belief about him, it's actually taking up resonance in him and being in Christ. And when that happens, everything changes because your very identity changes, and what this should do is this should move us further and further away from being in me, in self, and closer to our true identity in Jesus. Away from who I am in me and more towards who I am in Christ and more importantly, who Christ is in me. And that is how this letter of Ephesians will operate effectively in our lives and in the life of our church if we get that foundationally of who we are in Christ, who our identity is in Christ. I spent a lot of time on that point because I think that's so important. I think it's absolutely foundational to what we're going to see in the rest of this letter. I think another reason that we don't feel like praising his glorious grace, another reason that we're not in amazement or an astonishment of, of grace, um, is that because we really don't realize the depth of our sinfulness. We, we haven't truly realized the extent of our rebellion and the deadness that we were in when God called us up and raised us to life. Because we really don't think of ourselves as sinful. We really, we're really not that bad. I mean, we have flaws. We have things that we need to improve on. But when we compare ourselves to, well, there's some really bad people out there. I'm not, as, I'm not bad that. You know, so relatively speaking, we give ourselves a pass. We say, okay, well, I'm, I'm a good person. And, and so when we hear that we've been redeemed and forgiven, we say, okay, God, well, thank you 
I appreciate that. I, I really do enjoy that. But it doesn't carry with it this amazement or this astonishment that we've been redeemed, that we've been forgiven. And Jesus says to us, he says, if you've been forgiven much, you'll worship much. You'll love much. You'll only be able to worship to the extent that you realize how much you've been forgiven. And if we don't think that we've been forgiven all that much, then our worship will be really little. And so understanding our sinfulness is, is key. When I came back from winter camp, I was in the kitchen talking to my wife and my three kids were up on the counter, um, eight, six, and four, and they were drawing or something, probably memorizing Bible verses because that's all we ever do in our house. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm just trying to tell my wife about all the th great things that happened at winter camp, and I was so excited and super encouraged, and I said, and I, and I know there were some kids who got saved. And my eight-year-old, Evie, she pipes up, she, you know, she's the one that like, listens to every single thing, and she says, Daddy, what does it mean to be saved? And uh, it's very interesting when you have to explain to an eight-year-old all these things and all the ways that you kind of just normally talk in like kind of Christian terms. And so, um, and my wife is so great. She's like, yeah, dad, what does it mean to be saved? <clears throat> and so, um, so I said to my daughter, and we, we, well, we've talked about sin in our family before. We know what what does sin do? And so we kind of went down that route and we said sin, ultimately, what sin ultimately does to us is that it separates us. It separates us from ultimately from true life. And, and that really is, is what we have to drill down on, on in our sin. Our, our sin doesn't just make us bad. Our sin makes us dead. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It isn't that sin makes you bad. It's that sin makes you dead. The wages of sin is death, not just that you are bad. The gospel story is not rooted in you or I being good or bad. It's rooted in the truth that sin makes us spiritually dead, which is worse than being bad. So how do we get from dead to life? Because that's a huge gap. The spiritually dead to life eternal well, a lot of times we think the way that we get from being dead to life is through propulsion. Propulsion is like a rocket that takes us out of Earth, out of Earth's gravity into outer space. And then we think if I could just propel myself, if I can somehow do enough that I can lift myself out of my current circumstance and just elevate myself or somehow if I can get myself into a different stratosphere where I can go from, well, this is bad, and if I could just propel myself like a rocket up into the stratosphere of good. The problem with that is when you're dead, you can't build a rocket. It's not propulsion. The rescue story is not that Jesus came with a self-improvement plan to make us better people, but that Jesus came to give us his life, to pay the price of our sin, to be crucified and dead in our place, to be raised up from the dead for us so that he could give us the thing that we need most, which is life. When you are dead, that is what you need the most, not a self-improvement plan. You need life, which is why in Ephesians 2, Paul's gonna tell us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive. Paul gives us two blessings, redemption and forgiveness. 
He tells us we were so sinful that we needed redemption. Now that word for redemption in the Greek, it also means ransom. And the only time that you'd be in a position um, where a ransom had to be paid for you was if you were in captivity or bondage or slavery. And Paul is saying when it came to our sin, we needed redemption because sin held us in captivity. It held us in bondage. It held us in slavery. And it refused to let us go unless a ransom would pay. And Paul's readers, they they would have understood this word to signify the release from that bondage through the payment of a price. And the price paid is clearly the blood of Christ, which points to the sacrificial death of Christ, the new covenant that established with God. The Bible often uses the slavery language when talking about the depths of our sinfulness, but today we don't, we don't talk about sin in terms of slavery very often, but we will use this, this term addiction. And, and addiction and, and slavery, they do, they do parallel each other because addiction is not just when you have a problem, but when the problem has you. And when it comes to the depth of our sinfulness before Christ, before God saved us, the Bible is saying that sin wasn't just something you had, sin was something that had you. Sin wasn't just something that you did every now and then and needed help from. It was something that held you in captivity. Sin was something that refused to let you go. Sin was something that you didn't have control over, but it had control over you. And one commentator says that Paul is more concerned with sin as a tyrant or a power more than just acts of habitual disobedience even though it is that. But Paul thought of salvation in terms of release. Release from sin and the indictment that it brings. Because of grace, Christians no longer live in sin or under its indictment. Instead, they live in Christ. Now, if sin was just something that you had, then you could easily get rid of it. You could get rid of it with remorse or just feeling bad or you could just blame others or you could just modify your behavior. If that's all that sin was, you could just find a way to kind of deal with it and to, and to get rid of it. But, but if sin is not just something that we have, it's something that, that has us and refuses to let go without a ransom. And some of you, you, you feel that even now. You, you feel that kind of old master who's kind of calling you to bow down to it and to obey. And so you're looking for ways um, that you can deal with the guilt from that sin. And we have all these different ways that we try to deal with the guilt of our, of our sin. We, we, sometimes we just deny it. We just say, really, there's no such thing as sin. Or, or we blame somebody else. Well, it's somebody else's fault that I did that. Or, or you can excuse it. There's always some other kind of circumstance that contributed to why you would behave or act or think a certain way. You can diminish it. You can say, well, it's really not that big of a deal. I mean, the grand scheme of things in light of what other people do, um, it could always be worse. I didn't go all the way. It wasn't this. Um, you can punish yourself. You, you can feel really bad for it and kind of pay a penance yourself. You can just hide from it and hope that nobody ever finds out. You can try to earn your way out of it. You know, you just do a bunch of good things. And you're like, okay, well, I've paid God back for, you know, this pile of bad things that I did over here. And if we're honest, all of us, in some way, shape, or form, we've tried all those things, and we've all found them to be exhausting. And it is exhausting, because it's exhausting trying to be your own redeemer and to pay your own ransom, because you can't do it. That's why in verse 7 says, in him we have redemption through his blood in Christ, not in us there is redemption. Redemption is not possible in you covering it up or blaming others or trying better. Uh, in fact, redemption cannot be found in you at all. Redemption can only be found in Christ through his blood, what he has done. The blood of Jesus, his life, was the ransom paid for your redemption. And nothing less than the blood of Jesus could set captives free. That's good news. 
okay, so how do we deal with the depth of that sin? Paul gives us another way. The Bible tells us that you can be forgiven. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Forgiveness is another way that we realize the depth of our sin. There's a um, British pastor and theologian named Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he once said that the problem of forgiveness was the greatest problem that God had ever faced. And, and here's what he means by that. If, if you think about some of the problems that God faced in human history, there, there was a moment where um, there was just, just darkness, no light. And so God, to solve that problem, he speaks into that darkness. And he says, let there be light. And there's light, no more darkness. There, were, uh, there was a time when there were no plants or vegetation. God dealt with it by saying, let the earth bring forth vegetation. It was so. No animals. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. It was so. He sees Adam, this one man, all by himself. He's like, that ain't good. Adam takes a nap out from the rib, makes woman, solves that problem. Now, with all these problems God faced, all he had to do was speak or take a quick little action. But when it came to the problem of our sin, he couldn't just say, let there be forgiveness. The problem was too great. The depth of sin was too deep. So God had to do the unthinkable and the unimaginable. And God had to tell his son that the problem was so big that the ransom has to be so great that he had to go to the cross and die. There was no other way to solve this problem. The gravity of the solution shows the gravity of the problem. So both our need for redemption and forgiveness serve to show us the depth of our sinfulness. But when you see the lengths to which God has gone, how Jesus had to voluntarily be tormented and killed, all because sin was so great a problem that it couldn't just be solved with a let it be, we might ask why God went through with all of it. We understand the benefit to us, but why, why did he do it? Again, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Because of the riches of his grace. God went through all of it because of the riches of his grace. Because of the riches of his holiness, God demanded payment for his sin. But because of the riches of his grace, he himself provided the payment of our sin. Because of the riches of his holiness, God demanded the payment for our sin, our rebellion against him. But because of the riches of his grace, he himself provided the payment for our sin. The greatest problem that our sin brought to God was answering the question, how does the richness of my holiness and how does the riches of my grace, how do those things coexist? How do those things coexist? How could God both demand the payment for sin because he's holy yet also provide forgiveness for our sin because he's so gracious. How could he do that? Again, the text answers. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the, richness of, the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. What Paul is telling us is that God planned a way. He predetermined the most wise and insightful way in which the holiness of God would not consume the sinfulness of his people. He planned a way in which he could offer forgiveness, salvation, redemption to us in the wisest and most insightful way possible. And that's the way is the cross. When we look at the cross, we see the wisdom of God. There's no better way than the cross for us to receive redemption and forgiveness. Now, it's important to know that forgiveness and redemption, they're two different things, but they are inseparable. And in God's wisdom and insight, he saw, he saw that we needed both to be saved. And Paul, he puts them right next to each other and, and says them virtually in one breath. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. 
Yet in the depth of our sinfulness, we desperately want to separate the two. We want forgiveness, but not the redemption. And here's what I mean by that. You in your life, you have sin that's making you miserable. And you're trying all kinds of ways to deal with it. And it's exhausting. And so you hear that God offers forgiveness. And you want that. Because forgiveness means the lifting up and the carrying away of the guilt. So your sin brings you this guilt. That guilt torments you. And and it is such a heavy burden. And so you hear forgiveness. God takes it, picks it up, and carries it off. And carries it away. And he said, that's what I want. I want that forgiveness. So I don't have to feel bad anymore for my sin. So I don't have to feel bad anymore for my offense. I want that forgiveness. Redemption means that the ransom is being paid for you, so it's buying you out of slavery. But if you are bought, then that means that you no longer belong to yourself. 1 Corinthians 6 states that if we've been bought with a price, we are not our own. So if I were to say to God, um, that if I were to say to you, God's offering you forgiveness, you're overjoyed at that. But if I say to you, God is offering you redemption, and now he owns you, we don't feel so great about that. Because we want to be freed from the guilt of our sin. I don't want to have to deal with the guilt of my offenses, my sin. But I don't want to be told what to do. I don't like the idea of being owned. But I do want my sins forgiven. I want to go to heaven, but I'd really like to stay in control of my life. And Paul says that just can't exist because either Jesus is king or he's not. You hear us use this phrase around here. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. He's either king and has the authority to forgive you and then has the authority to guide you in how you should live, telling you to bow down, demanding worship from you, meaning demanding everything from you, or he's not king and he doesn't have authority. So you just go live your life any way that you want but you can't just pick and choose what he is. And that really is tough for us because it's a very modern view of salvation. It's a very modern view of freedom to not have any Lord at all, to just say, well, I could just kind of choose to live my life however it is that I want. I want to be my own boss. I want, to, I, want to, I want to just do whatever pleases me. And God does want you to be free, but that freedom is not an opportunity for the flesh, the scripture says. It's a freedom for you to obey and a freedom for you to worship and a freedom for you to actually pursue love and life. Now, some of you, you think this is not really good news at all because it's just like, well, I'm just trading one master for another. But, but if sin is no longer your master, that is actually really good news because God being your master makes all the difference in the world because he's a good master. When God freed his people, the Israelites, from the slavery in Egypt, if he would have just let them go out now to be their own master, that would have been a disaster for them. But he frees them so that they would live for him and worship him. And, 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 if, and if you just want the freedom just to be on your own, you really would have just replaced one master for another. Because you doing what you want, obeying only yourself for the rest of your life, really ends miserably. Because if you live a life that is only for yourself that life will ultimately only lead back to you. And even the best version of you is not better than what you have in Jesus. Forgiveness without redemption is no salvation at all. We can't have the freedom of forgiveness without giving the worship that redemption demands. When God says, let my people go, he's ultimately saying, let my people go so that they may worship me. Which is why in verse six, Paul says, this is all to the praise of his glorious grace. 
why does the Bible spend so much time talking about our, our sin? Why, 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 is it, why is it trying to get us to, to see the depth of our sinfulness? If you remember the first moment where you met Jesus, and, and I realize for some of you in your room, that moment hasn't occurred yet. For those of you who've met Jesus, you came face to face with the cross. And when you came face to face with the cross, you did come face to face with your own sinfulness. And by the Spirit of God, there was something that was revealed into you, a desperate need for a Savior. And you found that in Jesus. Now, the gospel is not just a one-time glance at the cross to realize your sinfulness and to realize the power of a Savior. But what the gospel demands of us, what the cross demands of us, is that we ponder and meditate on it, that we serve every square inch of it, and that we see the very depth of our sinfulness, and that we see the solution that was needed to deliver us and forgive us from our sins. A lot of times we want to skip over the crucifixion and go right to the resurrection. But we first have to be condemned by the cross before we can be saved by it. There is no resurrection apart from the crucifixion. And so if you look at the cross long enough, you'll see a paradox start to set in your life. As you walk with Jesus for a period of time, you'll begin to see him change you. And you'll, you'll realize that I do sin less, but I feel like an even bigger sinner than I ever was. Because you see how perfect Jesus is. And in light of Jesus, you'll realize I'm, I'm a greater sinner than I ever thought. But you are a bigger savior than I ever dreamed. And really, Paul wants us to grasp that before he takes us through the rest of his letter so that we understand what we have in him, this redemption and this forgiveness. And so let's ask God by his mercy and his grace to help us to see who we are and what we have in Jesus a people who are redeemed and forgiven, people who are ransomed and set free according to the absolute richness of his grace, which he is not stingy with, by the way. Paul says he lavishes it on you so that we might be a people who praise him with our whole life. Let's pray. God, we love you. And God, we just thank you for your word this morning. And God, I do pray, um, God, that our hearts would not grow cold to this truth. And God, it may be very, very familiar to some in the room. And God, again, there might be some who are hearing this for the very first time. And God, I pray that it's celebrated by both. God, I pray um, that this news um, would not just be some news, that it would not just be news that we attach to our life, but God, it would be the best news. That's the very core and center of who we are. God, thank you again for your mercy this morning, giving us once again another opportunity to just peer into the depths of how much you love us and how lavish your grace really is on us. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.